Hello and welcome to Open Door Films. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Fountain, a podcasting app that lets you earn and stream Bitcoin while you listen to your favorite podcast creators. That's right. Much like the Patreon model, in addition to being able to stream Satoshis to your favorite podcasters, you can even earn Bitcoin while listening to them. So basically you're being rewarded for your own free time. And even though podcasting has become a new, a new foundation which you can <coughs> excuse me, access new productivity hacks, you're pretty much with the Fountain app, you can pretty much earn Bitcoin while listening to the very few, very people you love and admire. I mean, it's only fair because I mean look, as I mentioned, podcasting is a very effective productivity hack. You can listen to your favorite creators while you're doing stuff, but it does take up a lot of time, and it can be very addictive because there's a lot of great content out there, so why not make some money off it? Now, for those of you who want to be podcasters, that's where the second sponsor of this podcast comes into play, and that would be Anchor. Now, each of us has a creative bug inside of us, and podcasting has given it's awakened a new foundation of creativity, if you want to call it that. And, but there are a lot of podcasting apps out there, and you're probably wondering, do I have to publish my recording on each platform? Well, not necessarily. Anchor does that for you, basically. All you got to do is just record yourself, sign up on Anchor, publish your podcast episode there, and it's going to distribute it across all the other platforms out there within a matter of minutes. That's right. Apple, Spotify, Fountain, CurioCaster, Lisbon, Podfreeze, the whole shebang, which is a word I never grow tired of in these intros. Intros, God, I'm really tongue twisting it today. But there were no tongue twists in my interview with my guest today, Michael Mazaroff, who is a young filmmaker, very intelligent, very intellectually curious, and he's. And you can actually find his feature-length film, First Love, which is on Amazon and Tubi. I've left links down below. But we did. Speaking of love, we actually did talk about love a lot. I mean, I brought up Lex Friedman, the podcaster, and how he discusses love with a lot of his guests. We discussed it more in a, in a more film-centric way and how film has actually just just the idea of how film is presenting love has kind of died down and how some films have been more out of touch while other films had a more atmospheric authenticity. And we even brought up atmospheric authenticity when talking about other subjects. I mean, we, did, got, I mean, we pretty much talked about artificial intelligence, the current cultural climate, the impact of social media, and how even dating in the modern world is not being portrayed accurately in film or just the way film used to portray it itself feels out of touch. Again, we talked about a lot of shit and that's what I love about doing this podcast that we don't just simply have to talk about cinema. We can talk about all the shit that can go into cinema and make it what it is, what it can be as opposed to a lot of the sensationalized bullshit that we're fed every day to distract us from actually thinking critically. And that's something I hope to do with this podcast as well. Get people to think critically. I don't consider myself a genius. I mean, I just, I'm just intellectually curious, and I just hope that the guest I have is always that in, uh, intellectually curious in their own way. I don't expect people to agree or, or think in the same way I do. Just, I just hope that they're engaging enough to be interested in talking about more than just what what is the flavor of the week. Anyway, enough of my babbling. Check out the Bitcoin buying links I've left down below, and I've always left down below in each of the descriptions of these episodes. Check out Michael's profile. Check out his film, First Love. Support filmmakers like him. And, uh, well, enjoy the show. Okay, Michael, thank you very much for giving me the time to speak with you. And uh, 
as I mentioned, I mean, as I noticed on your profile, several of the films on your on your website, and I'm just curious to know more about your work in film. So why don't we start from there? Sure. Um, I'm a filmmaker in Los Angeles, and um, I have one feature film, First Love, which is out now, I guess, on uh, streaming on Amazon and a few other platforms, uh, I think Tubi. And uh, it's uh, about twin siblings who are estranged. And uh, the sister is a famous actress in Los Angeles who has a breakdown. And her um, twin brother, who sort of is also suffering from sort of like a life crisis, comes to meet her and sort of save her, but ends up not really being able to help her. And the two of them sort of face their, I guess, demons together. And um, I won't tell you what happens, but something either good or bad happens from that. So, um, and then other than that, I've made mostly short films, um, which some of them are online to, to watch, some of them aren't, but um, actually made a film about, short about a couple who fall in love in a mental hospital called Notes on Being Young, and uh, um, what else is out there? A movie called You Should Have the Body, which is a about Muslims on 9-11 uh, or post 9-11 who are who are, have to go through like the system of, um, I guess, American justice through that, which is very um, nuanced term. Yeah. <laughs> in that context, especially. And it was yeah. interesting that you mentioned your other film. It's a romance story in a mental hospital. Seems like a very meta statement on love in itself, given that people are becoming more self-aware about how love itself might just be irrational <laughs> yeah i mean it's funny that like just going through those films because i i they do the yeah there there's a sense of uh i guess i'm interested in people who aren't well maybe whether they're like technically clinically not well or or just like going through something so i i find those characters to be interesting characters um and also like in the context of yeah like love whatever the varying levels of love are whether that's like <clears throat> romantic love or sibling love or you know um platonic love so um yeah i, I um this might be a bit off topic but do you uh are do you ever frequent the lex friedman podcast because he constantly asks about love to his guests like their perception of love and i guess it in the spirit of uh podcaster i admire <laughs> I and I guess this works as a shout out to Lex Friedman, but what is your perception of love to tackle it in such a, in a very unorthodox, I wouldn't say unorthodox, so much as an unconventional manner in film? Is Lex Friedman, I'm just Googling, is like the compute, is that? From MIT? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, the, interesting. The guy who wants to build robots. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've never heard of him. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that like a scientist talking about love. I mean, I, I don't really, I mean, yeah, I definitely think that, I mean, with even the title of the film First Love, the joke of it being, um, you know, it's not, the, it's, you know, people think of first love as like, oh, my first love that I fell in love with, but in high school or whatever. But this was, um, in this case, like twin siblings being, and not in any sort of sexual way, obviously, <laughs> which I always made the joke that if I, if it was like a sexual twin story twins falling in love then it would be like it would have won like the con film festival and all this stuff like 
And actually in the course of the movie, like um, the characters, the brother character like is publishing a novel about his sister and that joke is made that the publisher says like, you know, you need to have it more uh, outrageous, more, sens- sen- you know. Uh, sensationalized. Sensationalized, thank you. So, but, um, so, I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, the idea that sibling love of whatever that means, I mean, in terms of, in first love, it meant that like you were, <clears throat> someone that you would see all the time that you had no choice to be you know what do you take when you die for that person I don't know I have a twin sister so I, it was very much based on that feeling that I have about my sibling which is again she I saw her for the first 18 years of my life so like love in terms of like it almost becomes like a it's a piece of you almost so you feel connected to it in that way some people are completely estranged from their family and maybe don't even have I mean it's a good question what if you're separated from your siblings do you still love them I mean in some ways this movie asks that but also the clear question is yes because their their bond is so tight that like separation can't do anything to to stem it but um but so yeah there's that I mean in terms of romantic love and I do think in movies is often completely bullshit and i think you know i don't know because love stories are dying in the movies there's probably less of a emphasis on creating for the audiences that feeling that there's some perfect person for you but i think that film and tv definitely created that myth of like some sort of romantic love where there's someone out there for you who's the perfect person and you'll find them if you just you know (laughs) the perfect the idea of perfection itself is just a fantasy yeah, I mean, it's just, and I think definitely, I mean, I think so much in film and TV is less about love now and more about some other, you know, other sort of main perfection. I don't, I, you know. Some other imperfection? Yeah, of like, I don't know, like you have to become like a superhero and say, I, I mean, a lot of it's about, I feel like technology and about somehow creating like a superhuman of some sort to save everyone. But um which definitely makes sense for the time we live in, but um, but you don't see a lot of movies about love anymore. And if there is in the movie, again, it kind of creates a sense that there's just like, oh, here's some random person that I met and now we're falling in love and now this is all going to work out well. But um, what about the more pessimistic stories? Yeah, I mean, I'm more interested in that. I, I, I think love is possible, but I think it's also very messy. So I want to, and when it's done well, I mean, I, I, you know, I think it's done, I'm trying to think of like modern movies I've seen that did a love story really well. Um, can you think of any? Um, well, it's interesting that you bring this up because there's a podcast called Cinema of Meaning, which is hosted by these two YouTubers, Thomas Flight and Thomas Vander Linden, who I don't know if you watch YouTube or the, the YouTube channel, like Stories of Old, but uh What's interesting about the one movie they tackled was 500 Days of Summer, and they brought up a point that there's something outdated about the tone of the film as a love as I mean, even though it isn't a love story and it goes out of its way to do that, even the more romantic moments of it feel out of touch because of the time it was made, because post 2008 financial crisis movies have taken on a more openly pessimistic tone. Yet this is a movie centered on two. I mean, I guess you could say they're millennials or generation X or late generation Xers that 
they're able to afford the things a lot of millennials don't have access to, the kind of luxuries, and they're very just positive. And it's obviously the result of when the film was being filmed mm. because it came out in, 2000, in late 2009. It was probably made in the middle of 2008. And, but, uh, and ironically, that same year, well, late 2008, Revolutionary Road, a film that is set in the 60s, which works as a counter balance against the traditional nuclear family idea came out so and that's a much more pessimistic film that's like the the i mean not just because kate winslet and uh leo dicaprio starred in it but it feels like the anti-titanic in many ways <laughs> yeah i never saw that that's it really interesting yeah i mean i i it looks really yeah mm-hmm. it, it's basically a massive dump on the nuclear on the traditional nuclear family uh husband and wife lifestyle i mean it just it's relentless and it takes place in the 50s this is not a film set in the modern times yeah i mean i think i didn't see religion road it sort of felt a little bit like i I, who was it sam mendes who made that movie that's right yeah i know it kind of felt a little bit like and i hate pre-judging movies without seeing them but it felt a little bit like on the nose like a little sooner scenery chewing like oh here's two really like dramatic actors and they're gonna just i mean i didn't see the marriage story is that what it's called the noah bombach film either i've but, seen it. it's good uh, it is good i should see it I, and i like noah bombach a little bit I, I mean i like his older movies but anyway i feel yeah i didn't see that but i think it's a really interesting point that you made about those two movies that came out in the same year that and how they looked at love uh from the standpoint of when how they were told in terms of of class and i guess i mean i don't know if revolution or anything to do with class but in terms of the night 2009 movie where they're like can afford things and do things that maybe like people their age really couldn't afford to do and it imparts a much more positive attitude towards life was now if a love movie comes out it's going to have a much more pessimistic and dep- depravity stricken tone yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, like, I think there's a lot of really amazing movies for a, a movie that I've been working on, a new movie, which actually, ironically, is about, like, people falling in love. Um, it's a romantic comedy, but it's definitely, like, my idea was to do a throwback to, like, the 20s, 30s romantic comedies, and that those really, really are very class-based, and, and they were made during the Great Depression, and during like the financial crisis and you know the third some of the 30 stuff with the sort of life coming back together and and people kind of getting rich it's, it's they a lot of them are based on a rich and poor person coming together or falling apart and i think that's not so much in romantic comedies today and i think you as you just brought up which was really interesting is like i didn't see 105 days of summer but if you look at the other 90s early 2000s romantic comedies they are completely like movies where things that people are doing are unattainable. Like they're going to like, like fancy restaurants and sporting events and doing things that are like the average person who's falling in love won't be able to do at all. So I think creating a comedic love story for today should play in part, like what is realistic to what, modern love is is going through oh, I think maybe, for the average person i think most hollywood movies don't do that and i think they used to which is weird it's like somehow hollywood movies change that i think i don't know if it's not that like writers from early hollywood were 
experienced life more. And now it's like the pe- most of the people writing studio movies are like some rich kid who got richer. And then like, I love Judd Apatow, but like what, like his sort of view on life has been skewed from just being a guy who's living in like Beverly Hills and doing whatever the fuck he's doing. So I think there's, there, there's something to be said that early Hollywood had a lot of filmmakers whose lives, I mean, some of them were just rich kids too, but a lot of them had lives that were, um, they had gone, left countries that were in, you know, going through wars and or escaping from the Nazis or whatever it was. And they had like a, they, there was something they had to say about the world. Whereas a lot of modern day studio filmmakers specifically don't really have anything to say about anything. And they don't live, they don't live like normal people either. I think what you're getting at is that they had much more character back then because there was a greater level of suffering and much less, I mean, we live in a wealthier age now in terms of technology and the, I mean, in the progression of it. I mean, most people nowadays are hooked to their phones and I mean, in some way we're connected, but we're more, I mean, we're more inner, we're more connected, but more disconnected in this, in a social sense that I guess you could say that disconnection is passed on to a lot of the mainstream writers working today that they come up with these sensation, well, quasi sensationalized stories that just don't fit with the modern tone of what reality is and how chaos yeah. be. That's just well, my take. I like that take. I think that also the, again, it's like this aspiration for like, oh, here, you're going to fall in love with a robot. Like I didn't see, see Ex Machina, but there was also her, you know, it's like, like the thing that the everyday person, I mean, maybe they are falling in love with the robot, but I think the everyday person is like, what is that experience of the person who's just walking out their door in the morning? And like, I mean, and meeting the person that changes their life for the better or the worse. Um, And that's, you know, besides for the way that people meet each other online, that's sort of the way that the world works now is like, do you think or, her was a more realistic take in a way where it's not, do you think her was more realistic in that sense, but not be trying to be so on the nose, like a lot of other films try and be? Yeah. I mean, I liked her. I, I, the only thing that bothered me about remember bothering her is like the flashbacks to his former relationship, which felt, which felt really like abrupt. Yeah. And also cliched. I was like, I feel like there was no like homework done. It was just sort of like, Oh, now he's having a fight with his ex. Like it felt very like, Dis- disingenuous, but I, I don't know. I think I think it's a good. You bring up good points because what is modern romance? If you were to like portray a twenty-five-year-old, thirty-year-old fi- falling in love in America today, what would that look like? Because I'm sure a lot of that has to do with a virtual. When I say virtual, meaning like going on a dating app. You know, like there's not there's not. Do people fall in love? Do people meet each other and fall in love or have sex or whatever it is just by like walking out the door and being at like at a bar, at like a restaurant or at a coffee shop or a bookstore? And then it's sort of like or a subway or is that how people meet today? Fuck if I know. I mean, to me, yeah. that sounds like that just sounds like something you see in a movie in an old movie nowadays. When that's what I'm watching, saying. Yeah. I wonder if I wonder if that's really dating apps. I mean, there's something. I mean, I've never dated anybody with a dating app. I think that there's something very disturbing about how you can compartmentalize the idea of a person for a few selections on a filter. But that's... Yeah, and also some of the dating apps are more about like just the... 
the checkbook. Yeah, the, like it's not actually trying to find love. It's just trying to find like a quick, you know, feeling of worth for a second. So I don't know. I mean, it's 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 a really good point you brought up and I'm, I'm super interested in it, especially considering I'm writing a movie about it. But in my movie, it's definitely a throwback and people have fallen for each other randomly by finding each other somewhere, not by going on an online dating app. So um that might be that would make me want to ask you about ex machina as well but before we get into that with her i'd have to disagree with you on the use of his the past scenes of his wife because most of those scenes i think because they were told from his perception of how he misunderstood what went wrong and what went wrong and just it, it pretty much frames the argument of how love itself has just become so compartmentalized throughout the the theme of the film throughout the narrative of the film i mean look what he does for a living he writes love letters for clients writing to their significant other because they can't really express how they feel i mean he basically writes their ability no he basically constructs their own ability of how to express their own love for somebody else yeah i mean showcases a, a greater disconnection among people and some of those people he was writing for, you could see where they're like in their 80s. Yeah, I, I don't remember the movie super well, but I just remember being bothered by the flashbacks. But but in the context of what you're saying, it may be right, maybe it made sense because you, you weren't going to show. I mean, I guess it just felt very like throwaway. And it was like, I'm creating the scene so that you know that, you, that the audience knows that it's sort of like, you know, it felt for like contrived, I guess. I can see that. But uh, with Ex Machina, what did you think of that with the idea of a man falling in love with a robot whose whose actual face was because there's actually an interesting point in the movie where Brett Dom Hall Gleason's character asks Oscar Isaac, did you design Ava based off my my porn search results? <laughs> and it, it's not framed in a funny sense. It's OK, it is okay. It's not yeah. made to be funny. Yeah. OK. But it's basically, I mean, it just showcases how lonely he is on some level, but it also shows it, I mean, the fact that he fell in love with, he was willing to fall in love with a robot who was, he, to his, to his own lack of knowledge was designed in many ways as a test for him. What are your thoughts on the, the story and its idea of love? Yeah, and, and to be fair, I actually somehow didn't see that movie. I don't know why, but um, but I've, everyone always talks about it, so that's why I brought it up. Oh, so good. I can't really make a, a full statement based on what you're saying. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think, the again, this idea that people, like, what do you want to choose to tell a story about? And I guess if you're going to tell a modern story about love and you want to make it about a robot, then that's the choice because maybe people's relationships are with the computer or whatever they're found on the computer or like some porn site or oh ex machina is not a love story i mean no, it's not it, okay it has oh. elements of love in it but okay. he doesn't surprised. fall in love with the robot is what you're saying well that i can tell you he does but there's okay. more there's much more dimension to the, the whole that that's just a component of the story and it just poses a lot of questions regarding artificial intelligence how we look at artificial intelligence and even how we look at ourselves as human beings and what, why we think the way we do or how we think in certain patterns. You'll be, fa- it is a great film and I think you'll like it when you see it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's just sort of one of those movies like, I did see his last, his, the next uh-huh. film, maybe, I think it's Annihilation. Oh, you didn't see Men? I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that either, but um, I mean, I'm interested. I mean, he's definitely an interesting filmmaker, Alex Garland. I like, 
stuff that he does and he definitely oh, has yeah. a visual annihilation um, great film and i even saw the film it was based off of and it had many similar components have you ever seen Tarvos andre tarvarsky tarvarsky's i hope i'm pronouncing his last name right tarkovsky tarkovsky's um, again another movie that i'm embarrassed i i i, I for some reason went to film school for a long time Tark like he's one of those filmmakers who's always talked about in film school but i don't know i guess like it's one of those things too where you kind of want to be i like seeing movies in theaters and i guess maybe because his movies are kind of long and deep like people they're not being programmed in like repertory theaters so but i would as someone who a filmmaker who yeah i it's talked about all the time someone i sadly haven't seen enough of his work but yeah i know stalk i mean i've seen an i've seen stalker images scenes from stalker so i know that if you see it you'll notice has very similar elements to annihilation a lot that but i mean it's definitely much it definitely goes into different psychological territories regarding the the human condition just like annihilation did regarding our own self-destructive needs no uh, self-destructive urges but it's very similar in that context and horrifying in the questions it asks and leaves unanswered, just like Annihilation. But Annihilation is more, well, I mean, both are science fiction based, but Annihilation is more deliberate with the presentation of an alien. But even that, the idea of the alien itself is put to question because we, it's not the traditional idea of what an alien looks like. Yeah, what is it? What I can't, in Annihilation, what does the alien look like? It's like, it's like this mass of energy. It's like just like this mass of matter, this form of energy that it can take on and replicate any, any form. They right. don't know if it's carbon based. They don't know what it wanted. It wasn't, they're not even sure if it was sure it wanted anything. It was just replicating the characters, taking on the characteristics, and then spreading them out in a way where they're absorbing each other's characteristics. It's like a force of nature that couldn't be comprehended. And that's the beauty of the way uh, the idea of an alien was tackled in that film, because we have this more simplistic or just by the numbers approach of what aliens are. And even with the best alien movies like Alien, that's just simply a much more malicious idea of what the monster is. And even in films like Alien, the alien isn't perceived as an evil force. It's just a for mm. It's just a primal, a primal animal. And the real malicious force is the corporate inf the corporate forces trying to control that force, and that only to realize they can't. The also, it's always it, like sometimes I'm always when I watch an alien movie, I'm like, why do they, why does like who care? Like, why don't they just leave it alone? Like, I always feel like it's sort of it's the same thing with horror movies. It's like, okay, here's this really evil bad person, but then they're like they keep going. It's like I would just walk away, you know. It's like why? Who cares? Like. It's always well, interesting that like, well, then there would be no movie if they walked away, but like well, there should be one movie where they just leave the alien or the horror person alone and see what happens. Yeah, but with the alien, it's more, under, I mean, with the Xenomorph from the alien franchise is more understandable because you can't judge it as an evil creature. It's just a primal organism doing what it does best. It's just surviving. Right. And I mean, even the mystery behind it, which, yeah, the Prometheus, Prometheus and Alien Covenant kind of ruined but in a way where it it, uh, it presented even bigger questions about humanity rather than the alien itself, because the benefit, I mean, 
the positive side about Alien, I mean, Prometheus and Alien Covenant is it's more directed towards humanity and artificial intelligence, because I don't know if you've seen Alien Covenant, have you? I have not, no. I've you seen the original before? Alien movies, but I never saw Alien Covenant, yeah. Well, now it's being reinterpreted as a brilliant film, and I'm curious if you want me to spoil it or... Yeah, spoil it, it's fine, you can. Well, you learned that the android that uh, Michael Fassbender playing Prometheus created the Xenomorph through his actions... And even though that could be seen as a cheesy move, it's actually much, it's actually much more, it's much deeper into the nature of artificial intelligence. Because when you think about it, we're worried about our about our own developments in artificial intelligence and what that could lead to. And it's like a, it has like a cyclical effect. We created something that's godlike and very intelligent, much faster learning than we are it could probably be it could probably surpass us one day and the blade runner films explore that more deliberately and directly while as an alien covenant it just poses the question because we created the artificial intelligence that became david who realized why the hell do i have to serve human beings why can't i think for myself and then he creates the alien because it makes him feel godlike Mm -hmm. hell he wipes out an entire race created by these other aliens who supposedly created the human race. And he even quotes Shelley's poem, Ozymandias. Uh, I don't know if you've read the poem. I haven't. I, I know it. I mean, I, I, yeah. Uh, well, I he, he yeah. does quote the most uh, iconic line, look upon my works, ye, my name's Ozymandias, look upon my works, ye mighty in despair. And he does that while committing genocide. So there's just something very cyclical about the idea of our own self-destruction. I mean, ah, we're just going into a lot of intellectual territory here, but... uh, No, I mean, I agree with you. It's hard for me sometimes to cling on to those kind of movies because they are sort of like, like the bigger, like AI sort of Android, whatever this thing is that, artificial intelligence that we're creating is a real threat but until it's a real threat you're sort of like for me it's all sort of like all over the place yeah i mean it's it's hard for me to grasp versus like the atom bomb for example like you know which i now is a sort of not out of date but it's not relevant because of what you know in the 40s and 50s when it was started a lot of films were based off that you know and to me that's more real because it's a real threat whereas like there's no real known threat as of yet i mean if tomorrow the there's some sort of rise of the machines i guess i'll be like well i was wrong i should have been paying closer attention to those movies but it feels somewhere that's very science fiction to me that doesn't that it's hard for me to grasp in a sort of like really in a way where i feel connected to the material and i feel like also usually the movies are told so that like none of the characters are things feel real i i'm sort of a sucker for sort of like realness in movies unless it's something like super abstract and artistic and it's sort of like i'm taking you to this place that's not a real place and i'm gonna blow your mind you know like i i've never seen tarkovsky movies but stock like there's something you know what's his name's remake of uh a tarkovsky movie um what's it called uh, with george oh, so, Clooney. solaris with yeah. uh, george Clooney. Yeah. i saw that version i haven't seen the original soderbergh version yeah you know i don't know like there, there's something when you're trying to create life on earth and make it realistic to that to that subject matter it doesn't it just because that to me isn't part of my daily living versus like okay 
we could all die in a nuclear explosion tomorrow. God, you know, again, it's not relevant to the nine, 2022, even though there's a war in Ukraine and there's like a power plan in this. People sort of are stuff. still, people are still living their normal lives. They're not going paranoid like they did back in the fifties. Yeah, 60s. that's my point. Yeah. There was no air drills we don't go to school. And, but I don't know that to me, I almost need something that, to, that feels real that I'm scared of that. I'd be like, okay, this, this feels like something, but I mean, I, I, I mean, the original alien two original alien movies are, I mean, the James Cameron and the Ridley Scott one. I don't know who did the first one. Ridley Scott did the, the original and uh, James Cameron did the second one. Yeah. Yeah. Aliens. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think David Fincher directed the third one. Maybe he's not too proud of that. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was with Winona Ryder, right? Um, I'm not sure. I've only, the only alien films I've seen are the first two. I've yeah. seen those god-awful Alien versus Predator films, which Ridley Scott has not bashed, but only because he has a good relationship with Paramount and he doesn't want to destroy it. Okay. I don't blame him. And I've seen Prometheus and Alien Covenant. I've not seen Alien Free, Alien Resurrection, or Alien Resurrection. Yeah. But I mean, listen, I mean, they're clearly making money and people should, you know, people enjoy them and get into, I have nothing against them. Just for my taste, it's hard for me to sit through those movies, but I mean, I, and even those original, the alien and aliens and even Blade Runner, they're, they're movies that even though they're set in like another. Their perception of the future. Yeah. They're, 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 the, the way those films used to be made when you watch them, they felt real. I know the spaces, but like, Maybe it's because of digital effects or because of the way actors are nowadays, but like Harrison Ford in Blade, in Blade Runner, you're like, okay, I believe this guy. Sigourney Weaver and Alien, you're like, you believe like the way that... They're portrayed as human beings that you see on the street, but even with Harrison Ford's character, he you could believe that's a very isolated person who's been in a state of mind, in a lost state of mind for so long because... When you think of I mean, when you think about the psychological dilemma he's in, he questions his own humanity, whether he really is a replicant or not, or whether what he's doing is right. Because at the end of the day, the replicants, one of the misconceptions people had about them, or even I did, was that they're robots, but they're not. They're actually artificially made human beings mm. for a form of science that I don't know if that's in the works of bio. I mean, probably bioengineering is in the mm. work, but not to that de degree of sophistication. But the idea that he's killing off human beings who are technically superior to us in, our, in their intelligence, their, their strength. I mean, the fact that those robots can have sex is, hmm. is just proof of how sophisticated the science that made them is. But they're engineered in a way, they're bioengineered a way where they're going to die at a specific time in which their genes were constructed. And they don't process emotions as much as well as we do but then again we don't necessarily pro that all depends on <laughs> the way we we process our emotions is even healthy because that constantly changes over the course of time and generations absolutely and, yeah. and uh it does raise other questions about artificial intelligence and whether it will have feelings but I mean, I certainly think Blade Runner and films like Annihilation have a much more realistic take on those particular subject matters, and people are not exactly invested in them. And then with nuclear war, when you were talking about it, our culture's sort of gotten used to the threat that it's almost like, yes. like it's nothing. And I guess um, I'm guess this leads me leads me to my question: Are you looking forward to Christopher Nolan's film Oppenheimer? Yeah, I mean, again, like like Nolan knows what's up. I mean, I feel like you know, it's a great, great you know, um, pivot there. I mean, I, cause I do think that's a filmmaker who 
sort of understands history, but also understands the modern. I'm not like a huge Nolan person, but I do appreciate the fact of his like, he has a sense of like, of history, not only history, history, but film history in his movies, where there's like the the craft of filmmaking from whether you want to say it's a hundred years ago, but it, and it is, is still like relevant in the way that he makes movies. And, you know, I went to uh, 2001, a space odyssey screening. I'm in LA. I don't know remember where you are but i'm in florida okay i'm in los angeles i just see the sunshine so i figured you're somewhere like warm and sunny um and humid and here <laughs> so the but you know nolan at that 2001 a space odyssey we did he did like a res, uh, res restoration i think of the sound mm-hmm. at the academy theater in la and i went and it was just like the way his reverence for film and sound real sound and i it, like it really adds to my respect for him as a filmmaker because i know when he's going into something he's going to it with a sense of like and again this is you're not required as a filmmaker to do this but i do think a big part of filmmaking is just like any other art form about the history of it so like he knows where he's coming from he knows what the masters before him have done and he's sort of taking a step forward in, in it from from using those same tools. So I, I respect, I'm not saying that, A, you have to do that as a filmmaker, and B, I'm not saying that other filmmakers <laughs> don't do that, but I think he does it really well. And I think um, when you watch a Christopher Nolan film, you see other filmmakers' movies inside of them. Um, and I, I respect that a lot. Uh, uh, yeah, and it's interesting that, as you just brought up, like that, how new, the nuclear age is sort of like not relevant to today's generation. And here, like one of the biggest filmmakers in the world <clears throat> is is choosing to tell that story at this time, which begs a question. Do you think you know? that'll bring a greater awareness to people? Like, I don't know. It's a great, it's a great question. I wonder if people just don't care, like to your point, do people just sort of like, you know, in their twenties and thirties and even teenagers like, Oh, what, what's it? I don't, I know nothing about. It's not like when I grew up that people were like, okay, duck and cover or anything like that. But yeah, the further we are w- away from the atom- atomic, the last time atomic, I mean, the only time Hiroshima Nagasaki, it's very, very not prevalent in people's lives. And it's a good point that you make. And I, and I think it's very prevalent in the lives of our parents, grandparents' generation. Um, I mean, David Lynch, I think, has a, a, a an obsession with the nuclear bomb. Really? Here's in his, a lot of his works. Yeah. I think what makes Nolan unique is also he understands the ramifications of the part of the specific subject he's tackling. Mm. I mean, even a film like Tenet, which is about a weird, a new form of time travel. I mean, it also carries a tone of awareness of the current era we're living in, where it's all in the morally gray. And even the opening lines of the film, the very first line, John David Washington utters, which forks as a f- form of code for a contact as we live in a twilight world. And, you could say that given that many people are losing faith in institutions, their faith in politics structures are crumbling to a point where we're just operate. We're no longer operating in a binary, morally black and white way. I mean, I mean, I don't know if you watch Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, but uh, two characters that are pretty much hated there are the are the t- traditional morally upstanding characters. But, you know, that line of thinking is no longer relevant and it's even very diluted in many ways i mean did you ever watch breaking bad 
know what? I'd, I'd never watch any of those shows. And I, again, I know it's again, the Tarkovsky thing where it's like, you know, they're amazing and everyone has told you they're amazing. It's just sort of like, you just haven't gotten around. And actually, to be honest, one of the reasons why is I do feel like, and one reason why maybe I don't love Nolan is there is this sense of like doom that like an, a nihilism that has taken over TV and film and definitely Nolan helped bring up out that nihilism even though i feel like recently he's sort of shy, shied away i didn't see tenet but i do think that uh i can't take that any longer <laughs> it's like you can only take so much nihilism before you're like i can't and i'm not a hope i'm not like some optimist who's like life is great and everything deluded optimist and i think he's called himself an optimist but he's also a very realistic it's like looking at a david fincher movie which is very grot very graphic and nihilistic in many ways but there's always an optimistic and not an optimistic ending so much as like a, a brush of optimism at the end because it's not like it's like saying it's not all black and white and it's not all as black as i'm making it to be but at the same time i have to look at this realistically and i think that's what nolan does in many ways granted when i said he understands the ramifications of the subject he does i think he does it in a way where where it's kind of undervalued. I mean, the fact that The Dark Knight is a PG-13 movie is fundamentally absurd. I mean, it yeah, it's a superhero film, but it tackles many societal issues, even in a pre-2008 financial crisis era. There, and these ideas border, go back to the nihilism you were discussing and even the current post-9-11 era that we're living in. Because I think that when you said that uh, the nuclear, the subject of nuclear war doesn't, alarm people as much as it did back then i mean you could say that 9-11 was the next major great event but that was only temporary and now people have kind of gotten used to the fact that our country's been in, in, involved in some war or the other where it's just normal and yeah there are still some vocalization some vocalizations of, of frustration but even that short-lived to a point where it's only a matter of time before we get the next conflict and it's just the conflict of the week agree so, yeah i think you're right yeah yeah. So, but uh, yeah, going back to the Dark Knight, it just it the one of the lines that really strikes with me is when uh, Two Face says, "You fought to Batman. We you thought we could be decent men in an indecent time," and that's definitely Nolan's way of understanding the world we're living in is not the morally black and white we used to believe it was. And when I talk about Breaking Bad, Sorry. which I think has framed a great perception of morality in the gray area that i guess that's why those these two characters that everybody you'll if you do ever ever watch the shows you'll understand why people hate them so so much at least on a more intellectually respective level is because they have that traditional up morally black and white way of looking at morality which doesn't work, work that way so you're saying not the main characters, but side characters are are They're like supporting characters that are relevant to the plot. Yeah. And, and in many ways, there there are ways you can hate them. They're very biased. But then there are the more intellectually introspective ways and understanding that their views just don't work, are just so out of touch with reality or the way reality is truly framed now in the minds of most people who are self-conscious because I mean, if you watch Break, I mean, I mean you, I'm sure you know the basic premise of Breaking Bad, though. Yes. Uh, a teacher, uh, a high school teacher becomes a, a drug kingpin, but it's much more complicated than that. You see him in the first episode, I'll spoil this. He's, yeah, he's the nice, he's an average nice guy, but then you learn he was just being complacent like a lot of people are. 
that I make the case that I think he was better off being the evil drug kingpin he was because hmm. as evil as he becomes, at least he was being honest with himself as opposed right. to a person who was morally complacent like a machine. And that's even a criticism of modernity itself. Yeah, I mean, I, without watching the show, I can't make a strong statement about it. But I, I mean, you know, is so you're saying that someone has someone's more moral than they they're a machine? <laughs> I guess you could say, would you rather live in a world where people were more morally honest or immorally honest, as opposed to complacently good out of fear of being punished or because? Yeah, it, I see what you're saying. It it's was, a, it, yeah. It's a confusing, not a confusing question. It's a more, it's a complex question. I don't think anybody is anything. I mean, there's life is a very, to be a human is a very, I mean, in some ways it's very simple if you just want to say what it is, because we're just. If we have a definition of it. Yeah, but just, I mean, life is complicated and nobody, I mean, that's why I feel like I'm more interested in less in, in movies that try to tackle what we are versus like, creating a structure and then here's the guy who represents moral and here's the guy who represents the immoral and it's like i'd rather to see something there people were and again it's you know it's also a genre thing like i'd rather sort of watch a movie where people are struggling with the same questions you're talking about but in a realistic way that they're in every day you know i'm not saying i love these guys but like i just was bringing up richard linkladder and you understand where they're coming from basically yeah, like you feel, you know, like a lot of times when you watch a Nolan film, you're like, oh, he's check, he's checking boxes. Like now I need this guy check. Now I need this character to fulfill. I like, I mean, that's my problem with modern with studio filmmaking is like so much of it is based on like a three act structure and and that's you know storytelling from Plato. So it's like, oh, we're doing what we've always done. You know, this is how stories work. But for me, I'd rather watch like a movie. You know, last two years ago there was a movie by a Taiwanese filmmaker, Sai Mai Ling, who I'm not pronouncing great, but you know, all those things you're talking about are in the movie, but the movie is very, very abstract and very cinematically original. Um, it's called blanking on the name, I'll look it up, but it came out, you know, it played in the U S a few years ago. And I mean, all his movies are amazing and, and, um, and, uh, they're worth watching. I think a lot of them are on like criterion right now. And, did you ever introduce these moral questions into your stories at some point? I mean, not so much in the way that you're describing them. I mean, I think my, I can't find his movie, what the name of that is right now. But um, the, you know, I think I'm less maybe interested in the way morals work and maybe in more, <clears throat> more interested in the way that we make choices in life and how we connect to each other. And then in the course of that, you know, the moral choices we make, but I, I, I guess like everyone, in my opinion, is morally not bankrupt, but is more, it ha, no one is perfect. Even the most perfect person isn't perfect. So whether they think they are or not is, is, is regard, you know, I mean that there could be a movie about that in this, but I, I like, like archetypes of, which I feel like are big in Nolan films. It's like, it sort of feels like a caricature. Like here's this person who's a really good person. And I mean, even like interstellar, you know, like they're almost cartoons, the people in his movies. And again, I like I like his movies, but like the characters in Interstellar aren't real people that you meet in real life. They're they're car they're architects, archetypes of people that he wants to create to prove his bigger point in his movie. I mean, I'd rather watch up more like I mean, I don't 
Arrival is like a genre movie where I feel like people are like the portrayals of the characters feel much more real to me. Um, I can see that. I I'm trying to think of other, I mean, but you know, I, I, I think that do I tackle the, those things in my movies kind of, but probably not so head on. Um, it's probably something I'm less interested in like morality and what people, those sort of like living your life as a robot or living your life as like someone who's more, I mean, in some ways, what you remind me of a little bit is like the idea that, and I, this is, I'm not like a philosoph, philosoph <clears throat> philosophy person, but you know, I remember reading The Stranger by Camus and it was sort of like, I don't know if you ever read that, Oh yeah, I've read it. But the the idea that like by creating like by committing the murder, but by 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 taking action, the person is like actually more of a human by doing something rather than just doing nothing. That it's given his life meaning. Um, so I mean, in some ways, back to the Breaking Bad. Um, Walter White is that the name? Walter White. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By being by actually rather than creating some sort of made up humanist, you know, moralistic life for himself that by doing the thing that actually makes it makes him do something makes him human. I mean, maybe that's sort of what it is, but I, I have never seen the show. And I, I mean, I'm interested oh. in the of what you're describing and I think it's a good point, but I guess for me, often it feels made up. It's like, it's like uh, the structure of it doesn't feel real to me. And maybe it's also the way that the actors aren't very good at acting it out so that it's sort of like if you want to watch like watch a checkoff play or watch a i don't know um you know like real theater and real storytelling then i'm fine to watch it but i don't want like i don't think nolan is like the master of telling me about morals you know even though if he's trying to do it i just don't think it works for me hmm. i can see where that's where you're going with that but with breaking bad i was just simply illustrating that you are that the show is not trying to make you sympathize with what he's doing you sympathize with his plight in the beginning but it's more about just empathizing where he's coming from to do the things he's done and eventually does do in the film in the show because he goes into areas that you never imagined given his position because he's turned he's he has terminal lung cancer and he and he gets you know he's diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and he doesn't have much money and he he's pretty much reserved himself as a dead man he's pretty much accepted it in the very first episode he thought you know what why not leave something for my family but then it just evolves and spirals out of control into something deeper and it gives you a deeper exploration as to what kind of man he really was or why right. he was the way he was and it i mean people misconstrue the idea of sympathy and empathy sympathy is with your you you're condoning that behavior and from a place of understanding while as empathy you just understand given the circumstances, something like that was probably going to happen, something similar to some extent. Do you understand that why he made those decisions? You don't have to agree with them, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, again, not never watching the show. I, don't, I have no strong feeling. I mean, I, I don't know if I, if I watched the show, I would be like, these guy's a dick and I don't really care about him. Or, I mean. He's I definitely fascinating him. one way or the other, whether you end up liking him or not. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, you don't have to like the main characters. I know that I know a show I haven't watched either, but I know a friend, people have told me like they don't like it for that way. The HBO succession, like people are just saying that the people in it are just so meaningless and awful that it's like, who cares? You know, it's like, why do we care about these people? I don't know if you have to care about them, but I do. It's not a requirement for a movie to care about the, the act or TV show, but 
Yeah, I don't know. You just have to be interested enough to understand what's being really said in the bigger picture. Yeah, if that's something that I mean, I'm more interested in the small moments rather than the big moments. I'm I don't I'm like big things don't interest me. Like strange small things interest me. So like the small interactions between humans is what interests me. So I I, I guess I'm not you know I'm not that not that I don't want to watch movies that are big and have huge stories to tell, but depending on how they're told, um, you know. Can I ask, are there any modern films that have car- have carried the components you just mentioned, the small things that interest I, mean, I feel like Co- the Coen brothers might be pretty good at that, like creating the small inside the big. But, um, you know, also like someone like a Wes Anderson as well. I mean, I hate picking mm-hmm. like, I mean, we're talking about like a lot of m- m- male directors, but, you know, even like The Godfather, you know, even though I know it's old now, but like that, it's not really a modern movie, but, you know, it's like a big, big themes and, but small, but small moments. Um, it I think tells that's you enough. Huh? It tells you enough about the grander narrative of the story. Yeah. And also it's like warm, like the, 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 the cinema, the, the, the art design and the world are warm and the characters are warm and the people. And the I silence, mean, there's this level of silence that helps you under. I'll put that together in such a neatly tied way that it doesn't feel fake. Yeah, I mean, I think that performers were more interested in what was like in, in bringing reality. I mean, I'm not saying actors are worse now, but I think there's a sense of it's. I don't know where it comes from. I guess it's maybe just the way that maybe they think audiences need just thrills and like it's like they want to treat the audience like children and they're just on an amusement park ride, but. I guess there's not a lot of room now for silences. I, I, I think, yeah, I think those two, like a Wes Anderson or Coen brothers are really good at creating big things and, and also intimate things. Um, I mean, Nolan can be good at that at times. I'm trying to think, I mean, I thought what's it called wasn't bad. Uh, the world war II movie in that way. Dunkirk. Yeah. It was like big and small at the same time. Um, because it's not focused on one particular person and it's just going from random moments of that event. Yeah. But the intimacy in it is there. I, I, I'm, try, uh, I'm trying to think of other directors. Modern well, it's movies. interesting that you brought up the Godfather. Cause I think one of the best moments is the end of Godfather part two or after that scene where Michael Corleone tells them that he enlisted and everybody goes to greet Marlon and off screen Marlon Brando. He, is sitting at the table, just ha- finishing the rest of his cigarette, sitting in silence. And that illustrates many things, like the fact that he's always going to be an outsider. He was always an outsider in his family. He always was living in the shadow of his father, despite the fact that he wanted to make something of himself as opposed to what the family had expected from him. And yet the ironic twist is he ended up being the very thing he was trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. So there's like a level of isolated despair that is fully captured in that movie. And it still leaves you with questions about what's really going on. Was it he always fated to become this or was it just bad luck? Because if he had simply accepted in the first film that somebody tried to assassinate his father and if he had simply let go that a corrupt police captain punched him in the face, maybe things would have turned Maybe if he hadn't have felt so much guilt over the, the, the history of his family in that moment where his father got shot, Maybe things would turn out differently. You know, well, yeah. Answers. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's great. I, I, you, you know, you're very like, are you one of those people with like encyclopedic film knowledge? I feel like you, 
know so many moments of movies off the top of your head. It's impressive. Well, you're the first person not to call. Well, I mean, you not many people call me a film buff, but I always kind of roll my eyes at the term because it just feels so. I don't know. It feels like a TV word. No, I I know what you mean. I I but I'm one of those people who watches a shit ton of films. I guess my brain isn't good. It's not a. I watch tons of stuff all the time, but I'm like bad at. I couldn't be like, let me repeat the moment in this movie, even that I watched ten years ago, because I assume you didn't watch Godfather yesterday. No, that was two. Yeah. Last time I saw it was two years ago. But you're uh, like remembering that moment. I mean, some people are just good at doing that. I mean, even when I read books, it's hard. I'm my brain is not that portion. I need to like work on that portion of it. But um, I just thought of another. What I was just thinking of someone else. Uh, damn. Oh, Spielberg. I mean, again, you know, Spielberg. I'm not like Spielberg, Stan or whatever. I'm not like okay, he's the greatest filmmaker of all yeah. time. But he is, again, somebody who can create huge spectacles and create, I mean, I just, uh, my sort of secret Spielberg film that I think is like really brilliant is AI. And I just actually watched it during the pandemic again. Hmm. I haven't seen that. And I think it's like a really, really brilliant film. And I know he got some crap because of the Kubrick thing and like, but Kubrick, you know, I was like Wikipedia afterwards and like Kubrick gave his blessings to Spielberg to make it. Oh, he so, was Kubrick was alive when it was made. If I was made much later after Kubrick's death, um, I can't remember if he was alive. I mean, it was either made right after he died or came. I think it he died in ninety. The movie came out in two thousand one, I think, and I think he died. I he don't, was I don't, maybe during the development process because you never know when how long these films were in development. Yeah, no, it was. It, it was. I mean, that 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 that's what happened. Is that I think he actually took the story rights in the sixties or seventies. And wanted to make it forever. And then at some point he's like, I can't make this. And he gave it to Spielberg. But I think the film is so well done in so many different ways. It's sort of like this ultimate, yeah, I mean, back to your AI thing, but it's sort of about all those themes of of love and and what is real love and what is real, what is reality. And there's like, and it's kind of heartbreaking. I mean, people said the end was, I'm not gonna give anything away if you see it, but it's like, the end isn't, it's the opposite of cheesy. Like the end is actually pretty like, cause, oh, here's Spielberg giving the sentimental ending again, but it's, this ending isn't sentimental at all. So I don't, I don't know how people read that movie, but it's a very, it's a very brilliant movie that's done and shot and created brilliantly. I mean, I don't love Haley Joe Osment, but for the purposes of that movie, he, he works really well. Um, cause he's, he's a, you know, he's, he's not a real person. So. <laughs> And uh, yeah, you should see it. It's great. It's really, really good. It's one of my, I think like, I think that probably the best Spielberg film. It's interesting of how when we discuss Spielberg, it feels like we're bashing him, but really it's more, I feel that he's just trend for me. I've kind of like just developed sort of a pessimism towards his films because they've become more sensationalized as opposed to his earlier works, which I felt had much more intimacy, even in their more sensational moments. I mean, take it a take a movie like Jaws, which has so many moments of silence in particular, or a movie like F Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I mean, there's a whim whimsical innocence to the that particular it, film, yet it still feels believable with the way people behave. I understand. Agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Et all et as well. Yeah, yeah. I think Jaws definitely is like maybe his best film. I mean, after I just said AI was, but for that reason, because it is like it's a spectacle, but also it's, it, the performances, the feeling, the, the, it's also like a texture. It's like the way that the film is made 
I don't know if it's because it was shot on film or because like there's no CGI. I don't somehow like the things feel it's the atmosphere, genuine. the atmosphere. Yeah. And it's sort of like, I don't know. I mean, that's why I always feel like if you're going to make a modern film about something that's far out, then like make it really far out. Then just like, like uh, I remember watching Annihilation and being like, this should just be a straight out experimental film. Like there shouldn't be any famous people in it. It shouldn't be like, I just want to kind of like make this film. It's so trippy already. It should just go all the way with it. And I guess like the sort of art, like you brought Tarkovsky, like, like he made, he was free to make art films that were just fucking weird. And that's what it was. And it was an art film, but like, I guess there's some sort of bottom line that, you know, Alex Garland had a, obviously it's a studio film and you're not going to have a book too. They're not gonna let him do whatever he wants. So, but well, I, I, it is. Wasn't it by no? Was it a twenty-four? Was it Netflix? I, I can't remember who made it. No, yeah. not Netflix. Definitely not. I know that back then, the whole streaming phenomenon. I mean, well, the idea of making. I remember people were mad that it wasn't didn't have more. I saw it in the theater, but I think it was like. Um, I know Skydance was tied to it, but I don't know if a twenty-four was tied to it. Uh. Twenty eighteen, Paramount. Uh, I don't know. Released digitally by Netflix. Oh, but that was in. The, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. Anyway, I get what you're saying, but do you think that a lot of films are just missing that the atmosphere component? I don't know. I mean, I don't watch enough. Like, I've literally also because of COVID and slash just the crap that's made. It's hard for me. It's like what movie? Like, what do you see in the movie that's just like a Hollywood movie, but it's also like fun. Like I didn't see, I had no interest in seeing Top Gun. I know people said it was really fun. I just was like, I, I it's, the it movie was made already. Like the movie was made already. Like why, like what is the purpose of having to rewatch a movie that was already made that apparently when it was made was very, I never saw the original, but it's I mean, I, I, I did see a new movie this year that was not in a, uh, it was like not an American movie, not, studio uh called uh um this rwandan movie um neptune frost mm -hmm. it's like a musical sci-fi musical i guess interesting it's pretty awesome i think it's streaming but i mean i saw the theaters it's really really good um that i recommend that but what was the question again Sorry. I feel, well, I was asking was, was uh, do you feel a lot of films are missing that atmosphere? Oh, yeah, right. So, I, I I mean, I'm just trying to think, like, I mean, again, not to bring up Wes Anderson, but, you know, those kind of guys, like, because I don't want to be like, hey, white got white male directors, you know, it's sort of like boring, but, you know, those kind of Wes Anderson or Paul, you know, the other Paul Thomas. Anderson. I mean, I really, I didn't love Licorice Pizza, but I, again, like the feeling of the, of, of, the mizzen scene the 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 uh, i i just really like i just feel like they're truthful and they're they're like paying attention and again like sometimes the movie isn't about that it's just about thrills and you know buy the video game you know it's like it's their products they're, there's a movie and there's a product and a lot of this a lot of the movies nowadays are just you know that studios make are not actual movies they're products no they're product placements or trailers for new movies yeah so marvel, i just don't, look at the marvel films yeah it's just hard for me to even judge them in any sort of way because they're just crap and i don't really 
I mean, Scorsese, people were giving Scorsese crap for saying that stuff about, but they're not movies. They're just, they're like amusement park rides. And that's why, is that the future of movies? I have no idea, but those aren't movies. Like what you're describing, what the movies you um, talk I would say some of the Marvel films are exceptional because some of the filmmakers have a self-awareness of the, of the influences behind that particular film. I mean, some of my favorites, the ones that are less conventional. I mean, Captain America, The Winter Soldier is basically an espionage film with elements of the 70s era. And the 70s, yeah. in my opinion, was one of the greatest eras of cinema because, yeah. especially in American cinema, you saw films with morally great protagonists who don't always do the right thing in the end and who are presented with these ethical questions that are either terrifying and they don't give you a sense of certainty. I mean, the parallax view is a film with that is laced with the type of paranoia where you don't entirely know what's going on, but it resonates with the atmosphere of the culture that was going on at that time. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, totally agree. The seventies, you know, it was the high, it was the, the highlight of the new, new Hollywood. I mean, that was the, the peak of American cinema. I mean, of studio, I mean, Again, we, we, you, people have had this conversation for the last five years, but like name a movie from the 70s that maybe even won an Academy Award and then ask if that film would be made today. You know, and it's just, it's always, that's a really fun game because it's just made by the studio because those were all like studio films. Mm. And it's, it's just- And even the then they had restrictions. What's that? And even then they were placing restrictions. Like yeah, that. they were. So I, I don't know. I mean, like Midnight Cowboy, I don't know, like Kramer versus Kramer, you know, that's whatever. Driver. What? Taxi driver. I don't know if you've heard yeah. that that story about that story that Tarantino said about how they were the people that were backing taxi driver were about to give it an X rating or an NC-17 rating and all because of the violent of the violence in the final sequence. And Martin Scorsese just changed the color palette slightly. Oh, yeah. altered it slightly. Yeah. Just to get that R rating that would save him. And yeah. Heard that. I mean, those are the kind of restrictions that were still operating back then in the 70s, a much more yeah. a much more liberal area era in terms of what kind of movies you can make. So I'm not sure. I mean, nowadays, it, it something like that would be considered controversial or not woke enough for people to understand, right. which doesn't make sense because I think cancel culture has been a major disservice to film. I mean, look at all the shit Tarantino got for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It was perceived as sexist because of that violent scene in the end with Brad Pitt and the Manson family kids, even though that is the only really violence. I mean, yeah, there's another violent scene in the movie, but the guy he was beating up in the in the ranch, I, I don't blame him. I would have beaten that guy because he was just an annoying and um, an idiot. I, I know. That yeah, yeah, I like that scene. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was, I, I didn't, I actually didn't hear people giving it backlash for that. I heard the only backlash I heard about it was the Bruce Lee thing from Asia. Uh, from Yeah, that's some of the main, main backlash. But the other backlash was that violent scene I just described. And that's among the only really violent scenes in the movie. And the rest of it is very laid back. Yeah, I thought the ending was really awesome. That final scene was a pretty brilliant, it's like kind of the movie in a way. It's sort of like, Gotcha. It's like set, the set piece of the, you know, it's like if the movie never happened, but that scene happened, you're like, okay, I'm, it was worth watching the movie. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it definitely, it's ruined. I'm not, as someone who's very left lefty and very like thinks progressively, I definitely think that this current age of 
cancel culture slash, you know, people, I mean, I understand where they're coming from, but I, I think it's changed how people tell stories and sometimes not necessarily for the worse, but I think it's, it's made a difference. And I, you know, and I think a lot of the stuff that comes across maybe studios desks are like, you know, they're, they're definitely censoring themselves in some, I mean, you shouldn't be misogynistic and you shouldn't be racist. Um, but you don't, you shouldn't just make a movie for the sake of being like, Oh, this is for, Hey, you know, it's like now we're gonna make up this world where everything is it's like that's bullshit like create create real show life as it is you know um i mean hell even i mean the idea of something being perceived as hate speech if it's hate speech then let it be said that way you can at right. least deconstruct it. i mean i mean i don't i consider myself like politically agnostic like i just don't i mean as long as i mean it's, as long as you live your life and don't hurt anybody and leave people the fuck alone that's fine but right yeah i guess the point i'm making is that i would defend the right of someone who had horrible views so i could then tell them okay you said what you had to say now i can I tell agree. you you're an idiot i agree i totally agree with you i think that's and especially because, in, in art in art it should be free it should be open it should be people shouldn't be afraid to say something because some schmuck is going to be like hey you're not allowed to say that you know well, fuck, um, well, fuck, well, go, I guess in the words of Joe Pesci, go fuck your mother. <laughs> I do. Love, I think that is a great way of uh, just like countering the, like a uh, mandated stupidity, because the idea that you're silent, you're pandering to somebody or silencing somebody and acting as the more as though you're the moral high ground. Right. Right. right, critical. right. I agree. I, it's, it's dangerous. It's not, it's not healthy. It's not fostering a healthy environment for and again saying that i definitely think there should be more opportunities for non-white male filmmakers to tell their stories and but but even if you were a non-white film filmmaker and you had something fucked up to say that other people didn't agree with you should have the right to say you know it's like like you said someone is on their moral high grind telling saying what can or cannot be said and the best art is made when things are messy and things aren't crystal clear and but even that's being corroded too, the forced inclusivity, because if you just force it, there's no authenticity right. to it. And, right. it even, and it even paints a victimhood of that particular group. And that's the last thing they want. I mean, nobody wants to be a victim because that, because I think even they're self-aware enough to realize that the supposed sympathy these people are giving them is not truly sincere. It's, it has its own agenda. I mean, when a corporation takes the slogan of a minority or some marginalized group, you know, they don't really give a shit. No, they don't. I agree. I mean, I think that that's why it should be, there should be more of a push to have filmmakers that are from different perspectives tell their stories. I think that's important, but I don't, but the force and, you know, forcing, oh, you, now you have to, instead of the gay best friend being, you know, frat best friend, you know, it's gay, now that person's black. And I mean, I think that, I think if it's from a truthful place and you're like, I'm creating a character and this is the truth behind them, then it's fine. But just to like for someone to come in and be like, ba 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 ba. Now we've now we've clicked all these boxes. It's bullshit. Yeah, that's bullshit. So I have a question. I mean, I don't know if you've ever followed the work of the neuroscientist uh, Sam Harris, but he once said that the only way to end racism is just stop talking about it. <laughs> I, I mean, definitely disagree with that. But yeah, uh huh. Do you think that there's some that there's some authenticity in that? Because at least, yeah. hmm. 
I sorry, Rory, I'll let you finish your point. Sorry, at least what? It's hard for me, but I guess in some ways in our culture, it's still not, not entirely impossible to not talk about race, but I get where he's coming from because. Is he white? Yeah, but he looks like Ben Stiller, if that helps. <laughs> he does. Really, he does look like Ben Stiller. Like you. I, don't, I don't know if, if Ben Stiller is trained in martial arts like Sam Harris. Yeah, never heard of it. I mean, this is my my feeling is that like, you know, again, from uh, I just saw a photo of him. That's true. It does kind of look like Stiller. You know, my feeling about race is that it's it's very um, it's inevitable. Yeah, I mean, in America, it's not been dealt like if you had dealt with it. First of all, it's very it's very new because I think like we are all so we're all because it's it's always it's talked about so much right now, which is really good. We think that's been talked about forever, but really, like, think about it, like, even in the 1960s, like, we're actually just talking about this with, like, a colleague of mine uh, that Jew I'm Jewish and, like, Jewish people weren't allowed in, like, country club then, and he was saying that Blacks, and I was just, like, you know, I think Ro whatever it's called, the um, loving where Black and white people were allowed to marry wasn't until, like, the late 60s. Like, mm. That's pretty fucking recently. So, like, the, the you know, as a Jewish person, you know, I'm actually currently making a uh, developing a film about the holocaust and like keep talking about trauma from that and passed from generation to generation so like which is a very real thing and i think the same you know to be a black person in america like if you could choose to be black in america would you i mean be honest like it's not a very fun thing to be black in america so i mean maybe it's fun to be black in europe i don't know but i'm just saying that like there's a lot of shit to go to be a black person in in the united states today the same maybe less shit than it was 50 years ago when you couldn't get married to a white person but like i think just in that itself like race does matter and i know like the book race matters by cornell west whatever you want to say about the guy it's true like i think one of his points was like it's not talked about enough and if it was talked about more maybe we could get places and not to bring up you know the elephant in the room trump i don't want to talk about him but you know so there can be an argument made is that he forced people to talk about shit that they normally like hide in their closet so maybe it is good to open it up and talk about it. But yes, I, I mean, I, There's maybe... a double, I think I know what you're saying. There's a double standard. I think what, what Sam Harris was getting at was that even though race is inevitable to discuss in the current culture, there is a point, there is like the, the, the black area, I mean, no pun intended, is really more about how, I guess, the, the dark side of it is that it can even that can be weaponized yes right just like how i mean i don't know if you saw the david fincher film gone girl some people perceived the way that amy dunn the character played by rosamund pike as sexist or an attack an assault on on strong women but not really she was able to I mean the woman hates everybody she's a narcissistic psychopath who weaponized gender and that even i mean the subject of gender can be weaponized on a, on a media level I mean, look at the Johnny Depp trial, whether you, I mean, I didn't follow that, but the idea that in the beginning, everybody thought that he was at fault is just a, such a common theme in our culture that it's always the man's fault regardless. And I'm not, I mean, I mean, based off their, what I've heard so far, they definitely had a weird marriage, obviously, but just the way that we think about certain issues alone can be weaponized. I mean, the idea that everybody was siding with Amber Heard in the beginning, and now they're siding with Johnny Depp and how quick that, that switch can flip. Yeah. Something to watch out for. And I guess that's, I, yeah. I'm going with, with Sam Harris. I somewhat agree with what he's going, he's, he's saying, 
where the idea is stop. I guess what he's trying to aim at is that because if we just keep talking about racism, that yeah. itself can be a, a weaponized tactic. I, I totally I agree. I agree with that point that it can be. But I think we're not at the point yet where we figured it out. But yeah, I mean, people weaponize it all the time. I mean, it's the same way. Yes, I agree with that point. But I do think, unfortunately, there's a lot there's a lot to still be figured out. I don't know if it ever will be, but it, it's sort of like there's so much deep, dark shit history that's also very recent. I mean, if it was like, oh, 300 years ago, get over it. It was like, OK, I mean, the same way the Holocaust was like, you know, it's already been almost 80 years like, oh, Jewish people get over the Holocaust. I mean, maybe I don't know, you know, but there's Jewish people are also white. So like the perception of not all Jewish people, I should say, but there's definitely dark black and Jews come in all shapes and sizes. But in America, I've been interested in how come Jews were able to like segregate themselves into society much easier than blacks. And, you know, part of it is that Jew looks, you would never know someone's Jewish per se, you know, unless you're yeah. like, oh, that person's, you know, so and it's just something interesting to think about. I, I, I don't envy the situation to be, you know, it must be very hard to be a black person and be thought of in a certain way when you're not that way at all <clears throat> and i don't know i mean i've never lived as a black person but i do think i, I mean I, it definitely in gen gender race has been weaponized and it's not healthy but at the same time there's still so much that i think has to be fixed in order to you know get where and maybe this isn't the right way to do it but i think talking about it is definitely helpful and having really real conversations it's not like I'm sitting down with my black friends and be like, let's talk about race, but it, it, it may help. It may help to have symposiums where white and black people, people like this guy, Harris talks, sits down with like the opposite. And again, I'm not being like kumbaya. Like I know it's easier said than done. I'm not trying to be like some sort of, but maybe that would be an interesting place to start is have those people talk to each other and see where they're coming oh, from. Yeah. He's, he's definitely the kind of guy who's open to it. I mean, no. You the most famous clip of him in an argument is where he was accused of being Islamophobic by Ben Affleck. But and look, I see where Ben Affleck was coming, but Ben Affleck was not the perfect person. And when you yeah. look at what Sam Harris was saying, he wasn't like making an anti-Muslim. Oh, I just saw it in real time with Bill Maher. I see this. Yeah. 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 He basically made a statement on how there is something alarming about how a certain per certain per, certain percent of per, percentage of Muslims believe you should be punished for making a bad image of the prophet. And I do, I agree with him on that, that there is something alarming about that, but that doesn't mean it's an assault on all Muslims. But when you take into the account, the two cartoonists were killed because of, they just made it, they made a, a, a cartoon of the prophet and a certain percentage of people believe it's okay. That's something to take into account. He's not saying to go attack and kill Muslims. And he's saying they're very he's being very respectable in that argument. Well, Ben Affleck is having is having I don't know what it was. I mean, Harris made a joke like a joke saying probably a roid rage. Because yeah, I, don't know. I, I have no idea what happened. I, I don't want to weigh in on that at all because I have no I mean, I was just Wikipedia and I saw that. Yeah, commercial shit. So I don't I mean, it's so famous is because it just came out of nowhere the moment ben affleck like went after him it just like came out like that's why because it was having on real time so yeah yeah but um like the tom cruise couch thing i guess yeah <laughs> but yeah i don't know i mean i think there's a lot to work on I, i'm not I'm, I'm not very interested in like view like super view, like i'm not a moderate and i also believe in like revolution i believe in like people taking stands 
and and fucking shit up but also i do think in the current christ state of the world now it's sort of like maybe better to like look at things both ways like be more on the middle because that back the danger yeah it's like people just want to react and and not think and also a lot of that reacting is money it's like dude i'm making millions of dollars with these talking points fuck you i don't care this is like my living this is how i make a living like i'm not i'm not saying this because i believe it i'm saying this because i'm making tons of money writing these things i'm not saying you're this guy harry i'm just in general the sort of i'm curious since you bring that up because a lot of people do do that with social media and the new rise of new apps what do you think about a guy like andrew tate i mean i don't agree with everything he says i watched an interview with him just out of curiosity because there's one thing i'm I'm fascinated by is people who are bummed i'm fascinated by people who garner a lot of attention because of their of their unconventional nature and those especially the ones who are very confident in the execution of that as opposed to the ones that stick out like shit more obviously so what are your thoughts i actually don't know him i'm looking him up now it looks like he yeah he got in trouble for doing something i, I don't know him at all yeah oh i was just curious because i mean i have a similar fascination with a figure like i mean i guess conor mcgregor is a much more is much more positive because he's not accused of misogyny or sexism he's just kind of like a tricks a more openly trickster like character that society looks to i don't know i feel that's a boxer or something yeah he's a man a martial arts i mean a martial arts fighter but he has he's very honest and very abrupt and kind of he just feels like he just does i mean it feels like he, the, a lot of the tactics he employs in his fighting style or even the way he handles the promotion of a fight is a psychological tactic. Like he's very self-aware of what he's doing. And he has this trickster-like nature to him. I mean, I mean the guy who, who runs the UFC, Dana White, while he was holding a press conference, McGregor just took the chair from him in a way where like he's like just purposely fucking with him, but in a way where he's in a crazy, insane way. And you can see that how that's working to boost his popularity. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know who he is, but yeah, I mean, you know, people doing creating that sort of mo- those viral moments. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It does. I'm, it's clearly people know the, who their audiences are and are having fun. And I, it, you know, it's a it's a tactic of existing in the world, I guess. And do you think that that strengthens the? the argument you made about the nihilism of our era more probably i don't, I don't know i mean it, i i i don't know like you said before like people step back and think like i don't think people do that and you know maybe i i mean i'm on twitter and sometimes i even do that i'm like oh wait what like what is this this is all just is like created for the purposes of people noise shit talking to each other and noise and like but would if that person saw someone in a coffee shop would they have the same no way that's what i'm saying is like it's just it's like a it's like a pornographic fantasy of how people want to live their lives that they can just scream at each other when they would never do that in real life. So I mean, it's dangerous. I mean, I think Twitter is a lot of fun, but it's it's stupid. I mean, it's it, it's a very yeah. We live in a very dangerous. I mean, we've always lived in dangerous times, and I think the world, the universe, the world is you know better than maybe it's been in a long time in terms of science and medicine and access to resources i mean look at how much our iphones really cost 
our, our cost reduction on many, I mean, our smartphones are a cost reduction on many things that cost much more to do 20 or 30 years ago, all compartmentalized into something that, I mean, a cell phone used to cost thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands, like the big ones, like you saw on wall street. Yeah. But yet now we have one for a few hundred dollars and it's not even a cell phone anymore. It's a super by like, like someone in China getting paid. Yeah, no, but I know what you mean. I mean, I think we're connect, like it's always that flip side of the coin, like we're connected and we're not connected. Like all this stuff is making us more connected, but also we feel more estranged. And I, I don't, I, I don't know how it all ends. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we're living through it in this sort of, again, back to the AI piece of it all. Like, does it all end in with like us creating some sort of like, you know, other version of ourselves that overtakes us? Maybe, I, I mean, I can't imagine that happening in the next five years, but you never know. But yeah, it's just, it's a really weird, it's like, it's a very crazy time to be alive. And I feel like everyone's sort of crazy and the pandemic and everything. And it's, it's weird. It's, I hope good art comes from it. People have you know, something to say that's interesting and different and, you know, that isn't just noise that, that people want to, I think people need to think deeply. And I mean, clearly you're a deep thinker and I appreciate that. So, Thank you. you know, I think people should just think, you know, use their, their noggin for, for good, for but as much in a way with a self-awareness of, of the current state. Yeah. Yeah. Just. Yeah. Because know, I, I think that one of the things of all this noise is, it also can tempt us into adopting much more binary way, ways of approaching these subjects rather than, than looking at them more with a greater, more open perspective. I mean, right. I listen, the reason I love a, a podcast like Joe Rogan is because he will have anybody on his show. I mean, I definitely, he got controversy for saying he wouldn't have someone like Trump. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of Trump, but I would definitely watch that episode of fascination right. because I think that there's a bigger picture to look at when looking at a figure like Trump. I mean, I mean, I know you didn't want to talk about him and <laughs> no way a defense or an attack on him. This is just me saying that when people accuse him of being fascist, they're looking at it being a very simplistic way. I mean, for one, I think when they even call him a fascist, they're complimenting him because they're implying that he believes in something rather than his known narcissistic tendencies. They're looking at they're not looking at the bigger picture as to why so many people in the country would vote for someone who is a fucking game show host. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the thing that got that got them, I can see why they were excited about someone like him or Bernie Sanders. And I'm not a fan of either of them. But yeah, the one thing they so you both totally heard, understand. Yeah, you totally understand why those. Two oh, people, well, yeah. what do they do? They talk like human beings. Yeah, because let's face it. Politics is bullshit. Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, they, they're relatable and that's all that matters. I agree. I mean, that's why I, I think, again, like back to my point before is it's all like that fascism thing is just a way for people. And again, I hate Trump and I hate, I mean, I know you don't care, but I, 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 I hate him also more because less of who he was when he became the president and more because I already hate as a New Yorker. What I he represent, him. what he represents overall. He's like, yeah, like, I, like even if he politics. wasn't in politics, I hated him. So, but the point is, I just feel like, yeah, like fascism is a word that people use so that they could use the word and then make a headline and then it says fascism, then people click on it, you know. And it distracts from the bigger issue because when you think about what he is, really, what is he? He is the embodiment of everything wrong of our culture, indulgence, narcissism. Um, this, I mean, I am a big fan of individualism, but if we're talking about the hyper self-indulgent individualism of like, say... Um, I don't know, just the, the standard idea of what, what you're supposed to get in this culture. 
that's what he is. Granted, the positive thing I would say is it's a shame he didn't work to be, he didn't end up becoming a stand-up comedian because he has all the sociopath, he has all the traits of a salesman sociopath that make him charismatic that if you didn't yeah. know anything about him and you met him for the first time, you would probably be delighted by him. I mean, Absolutely. I, even when I, even yeah. when I, I did dislike, I, I disliked him in a much more binary way. I saw him in a, in a Woody Allen film in a clip as himself and he was rather charming. You're right. You're absolutely right. I He's got that personality. Yeah. He knows how to tap into that. I agree with you a hundred percent. Yeah. I, I, I totally, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a really like talk about living in some sort of, you know, matrix. Matrix. That is the ultimate. It's like, like we've always heard of that person exists, like Biff Tannen and Back to the Future, and it's like, oh shit, that's happened in real life. You know, I mean, Biff Tannen oh, wasn't, geez. you know, but it's, it's, it's so fucking weird. It's like this is really, it, it, now, this is really, it happened, and this is really happening, and we've lived through it, and it's like, you know, what? it's strange. I saw The Matrix just a few months ago, and I feel that that film was even more ahead of its time than people realize because. When people ask, are we living in a simulation? I've talked about this with other guests on the podcast, but people, I think people just even simplify the term simulation itself because when you think of a simulation, I don't think of the brain in the jar theory. I think more of like the idea of a narrative and narratives can be weaved all the time. I mean, look at all the, I mean, there was so much misinformation in the, in the beginning of the COVID pandemic that you don't know what's true. You don't know what's being manipulated. Yeah. We're learning new things about the vaccine but certain narratives can be manipulated to a certain extent that they just fulfill an agenda. And at the end of the day, it makes you wonder, maybe that's what the matrix is all about, how a certain narrative can be weaved and where the, a majority of people can just follow by it. And only a yeah. very select few individuals will stand out and think for themselves and carry a self-awareness that does them, doesn't put them on one particular side so much as just keep an open perspective. That's my way of framing it. Because I look at film and politics in the same light. I'm not on either side. I'm just watching like I'm like I'm observing human nature. Yeah, I think that most people, you know, I, the social media would make you think that most people are, are in camps. But I think most people, that's a, that, the thing of the world is like there are six billion, whatever, seven billion people in the world. And like, you know. Pushing eight. If people were really fucked up, there'd be like, you know, I'm not saying like people be. We are kind of fucked up. We are fucked up, but we're not like primitive man. I mean, we're primitive in a lot of ways, but there is some hope that the human race has seven billion people and are somehow all doing their thing together. And maybe that's naive of me, but I do think you know. I think there's some feeling of we haven't totally fucked everything up. We're very close to it, and especially with the environment, but. I think most people are what you just described. They're they they're they're observing and they they don't want it really. They don't want bad things to happen. No one wants bad things to happen, and no one wants to kill their neighbor or, you know, it happens. There are people who do that. There are bad people in the world, but for seven billion people, you know, I would say, you know, majority I, I think are good. But again, maybe I'm being naive. So. Uh, I, look, I don't I mean, I'm more pessimistic, but I don't want to claim that that gives me all the answers because I mean, I don't fucking know. I'm just watching and look, I, I just look at people and I say, you know, everybody carries those potentially primitive tribalistic aspects because yeah. at the end of the day, even if you say you love most people, if you had to choose between saving someone you deeply cared about as opposed to other people, that's a horrifying situation to be in. And yeah, it's not, a, not a question yeah. you really want to answer because at the end of the day, 
it's almost inevitable for your own biases to cut factor into that equation. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's bad things have happened and they've always happened and they will happen again, but we have, you know, I mean, as a species existed for, I mean, then maybe this is the end of our species, but I think, you know, I think people have a sense of, of each other, of wanting to help, you know, in the most miniature version of it, but we, you know, you walk outside every day and the universe exists and people maybe cut, uh, cut each other off in traffic and whatever, yell about grocery store. But in the end of the day, you know, they go home and they go to sleep. So whatever that means, I don't know, but, uh, you know, there's, there's life isn't always, isn't always a, you know, nihilistic guy becoming a drug dealer and hating his, I don't know. You know, it's like, most of our lives are very boring and uninteresting and going to be that way forever. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, just, I mean, the other thing is like, get out, like not you, but I mean, p- the human race should just get out of their world and like, see, I'm not saying travel to a different country, but yeah, travel, see people, talk to people, like find out what's going on. And I think most people would be surprised that again, not to be cheesy, but you know, there's a lot of, there's more, you know, like each other than difference, um, even in America's bullshit politics stuff, you know. Um, so, you know, I don't know what that means, but we just have, I, think it's important. I feel like it's because I'm talking to you. I'm trying to be, but maybe I'm more pessimistic usually, but <laughs> I don't even know what categorizes optimism or pessimism nowadays, because even those can be said. I mean, True. those have become yeah. sensationalized terms. So I think it's just important to be self-aware and just don't let anybody influence. I mean, it's, I mean, if you get your thinking from somebody else, just still be self-aware that yes, take what you can from it and gain a better perspective. And I Absolutely. think it can help in storytelling. Absolutely. I, I a hundred percent agree. And I think filmmakers need to do that more. They need to get out of their bubble and be like, Oh, this is, this is allowed. That's not allowed. This is racism. This is, like everything is everything and nothing is nothing, you know, we're, we're, the, nothing is certain. There's no zero, nothing's, you know, it's, it's, that's not, it's not a math it's equation. It's, it's life and life is fucking really messy and dirty and shitty and also can be really beautiful. And those are the things that you have to figure out and express in your work and not say, oh, I'm allowed to say this because this is. You don't racist. want to become, you don't want to border on the ideological too much. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, people do, but no, I mean, should... like, don't make it idea like about the ideology. I guess I don't know if you follow Jordan Peterson, but he once said, that "Yeah, mm-hmm. he want what?" I know he is. I don't follow him. Yeah, he once said that. I guess in turn, he was framing it in the context of storytelling. You have to have that self awareness because you can either tell a good narrative or you're making it something that's pure ideology based, and that's when you lose it. I mean, I'm not religious. I'm not a Christian, but I think that. The reason those Christian films fail is because they make it about the they make they just focus on the ideology rather than the message of the than the narrative, and that's why they fail. They're basically making something that is purely propaganda rather than just about the narrative. And yet, there are many great sto- films that have na- that have good Christian themes. Yeah, but they're not like shoving it down your throat. Yeah, yeah. no, you're right. Um, wait, my battery is about to die. Hold on. Anyway, so for the, how, 
is this a good place? I was going to say it's, it's been, how long do you usually go on these things? As long as no, can... whatever time you can spare. I mean, that's, okay. I mean, if you have to, if you have to go that, I mean, I perfectly understand. I mean, you've been fantastic so far. Awesome. Yeah, no, I think I'm going to wrap it up just because I have, I'm trying to, I have like a new project I'm working on that I, I promised part of today to focus on, but I, yeah, I mean, Okay, well then, uh, yeah. we can wrap this up though. But if you, okay. I, I wanted to ask you, where yeah. can people go to learn more about you and your work, and that way you can, and they can just learn more about your what you've done in film so far. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the I was gonna say, go my web, website has links to my films, uh, michaelmazaroff.com. Um, my film the feature film which is on amazon is called first love and one filmmaking tip i'll give you is don't name i mean i knew this going to it but name your film a film a name that like will stand out because there's obviously a million movies called first love but i was like i'm i'm the greatest filmmaker ever so we'll be the only one on amazon so you have to actually like when you're on amazon type in my first love Mazar, you know Mazaroff, my last name but in the future you know you could just type in Mazaroff and you'll find my whole filmography now. But yes, michaelmazaroff.com or Amazon, First Love, Mazaroff, um, Tubi. And yeah, I mean, hopefully there'll be something new in the next year that will be out and um, I can come back again and talk to you about oh, that. But yeah, yeah I mean- I, I would definitely I, like to have you again. I love this discussion, man. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been great. I really, I really appreciate it. And sorry to cut it short, but yeah, I mean- you know, I can come again and we can talk again. And, you know, oh, well, that question, I would love to have you again. Cause again, I did enjoy this discussion and I mean, I've had a lot of discussions like these of other filmmakers or just storytellers or, or just people involved in film. And it's great to talk about other subjects that are not necessarily film related, but they can be part of the, part of a great film narrative, because I think these narratives can be weaved into a, making any type of good story. Yeah, I mean, I think filmmaking is a, definitely about humanity, about the human condition, about what we go through in life. We are. And how, yeah, I mean, trying to shine a light on that in some sort of way, whether good or bad. And I think, you know, it's 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 helpful. I mean, I watched last night, because it was on Netflix, and I've never seen it. I watched Collateral, the Michael Mann film, you know. Uh, yeah, that's a great film. People are really obsessed with Michael Mann, and I've always been like, trying to figure that out because I mean I've seen his films but I'm not like what is it that I like and I feel like I think it's because they portray the chaos of what you're describing in a way that's very atmosphere that's part of the atmosphere yeah one, I yeah sorry go ahead yeah one of the things he shit on is for the for including a love story in his all his films that is not resolved but I think that's what he's trying to say about the current world makes it very difficult for people to have a perfect love story, even in a pre 2008 financial crisis film like Collateral or Heat. No, I think Collateral's post post financial crisis. No, it's, it came out 2004. Really? Yeah. Sure. 2004. And even then, Tom Cruise's character is saying what we're saying that well, he the reason. Well, I mean, he's basically saying when he's going to L.A., tell you the truth. I, when I leave, I just can't wait to get out of here. People are too disconnected. Oh, fuck. You're right. How did I not know that? Weird. Well, anyway, listen, I mean, I, I, I didn't realize it was that old. So I'm, I like the movie in a lot of ways. I didn't, my main beef with the movie. And again, I do have to go. So, but this, you're probably gonna have some stuff to say about this, but I, 
like the once it got go like once it got on its track i was like i'm down to the ride take this ride and i'm i appreciate the filmmaking and the choices and the and the set pieces but like i hate the setup like and i i have to say maybe jamie fox became a better actor but like jamie fox in that movie was like oh here's jamie fox acting like it was like it was like an acting class it was like someone on the side like you gotta like i just felt he like also jamie fox is a huge personality in real life so i was no, like no not- and i still haven't seen his trump impersonation that i need to see i'm like that's not jamie fox in that movie that's like jamie fox acting and not doing a very good job acting mm. like i'd rather see jamie fox play jamie fox as a cab driver not like some sort of t- meek timid like like cast someone it was for again me bad casting tom cruise fantastic casting tom cruise is a bot you wish you could see him more in roles like that tom cruise is a fucking like psycho sociopath serial that is tom cruise so like kudos he did was, two nazis what those two guys the 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 anorexic leo dicaprio and that other guy they were nazis what do we what's going on what do you remember those two guys that uh jacked jamie fox yeah the, yeah you, the white you mean they're supposed to be nazis in the movie no they were nazis you see a little mini swastika on that dude's neck no, but like they're actors. What do you mean they're Nazis? Like, no, the, the characters, those characters were Nazis. I get it. I get it. I, 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 you could tell they were like some sort of white supremacist. Anyway, but the, the other issue with the film is, again, that is that I like, again, it's a it's a fiction film and it's a movie and it's supposed to be fun. But like, I guess either like start your this is a problem. They have a lot of like action or genre movies is like start your movie in a way that makes it feel completely unrealistic or like they started the movie with a conversation with Jamie Foxx and whatever her name is. Who is that actress? Jada Pinkett Smith. Yeah. That's what I thought. I just couldn't, for some reason she looked different. I don't know why. Um, I hope Will Smith doesn't slap me at the end. Okay. No, okay so, I thought, yeah, I felt I like thought he wanted to slap Chris Rock on his they own. Were try- <laughs> they were trying to like create like a kind of before sunrise after, you know, it's like, oh, here's two, but it was like so phony and bullshit. And I'm like, this would never happen to fucking cats. And like, maybe Tom Cruise is a sociopath and he would strike up a conversation with fucking, but like, this is bullshit. None of this shit would ever happen. Don't start your movie. That's about something that's completely out of control. Like in such an unrealistic, in such a trying to be realistic way that it left like a bad taste in my mouth until the movie picked up and got going. And it was about, it was when the movie was true to itself, then it worked when the movie was like trying to be something else. I was like, it's not working for me. And I, and that's just was my small opinion of the movie. I mean, I also thought it was a little cheesy. Like Tom Cruise's line is like, Oh, I'll be a, you know, do you think someone left on the LA Metro will be, you know, left there. And at the end of the movie, he was, and it's his last, I don't know. It's, and also it's not the LA MTA. That's not what the MT, the Los Angeles is, is it the MTA is New York. The Metro in Los Angeles is called the Metro. So I thought that was really weird. Um, anyway. You'll have to ask rant, Michael Mann because he definitely loves LA a lot. My rant, my rant is over. I really appreciate the filmmaking and the 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 world building and the like feel and the set piece. Like it's Michael Mann's a great director, but like he's not a great, I feel like the script left a lot to be believed and truthfulness and 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 like the arc was there, I got the arc, but the arc felt like an arc. Like, oh, now I need it again. That's my my as a filmmaker. When I watch Hollywood movies, I always just sometimes feel like it's just too 
like, oh, we have to fit this into the movie because that's On the what nose. Yes. So I'd rather be messy and crappy and shitty than like stylized and sort of feeling like, and maybe, you know, that doesn't take away from the movie, just that first part of it, the, the first act I was like, you know, let's just, just have fun. Like there's no reason to try to make this serious or have some sort of like, you know, anyway, but um, that was my rant. I'm going to go, but uh, this was so great. Um, Mom, really looking forward to our next, uh, looking forward to the next time we could speak and uh, best of luck to you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, and then uh, how do we, how, where do we watch this? Like, is this on Spotify or how do it's we It's going to be on all the platforms, Apple, Spotify, because I, oh, post cool. this, I published this on Anchor and it just distributes it across them. Great. And if you want, I'll send you the link to one of the really good podcasting apps, Fountain. I don't know if you're into Bitcoin, but you actually can earn Bitcoin by simply listening to your favorite podcasters through that app. Oh, sweet. Yeah, you don't you don't even have to you can it's not just that you can stream Bitcoin to support creators like you would Patreon. You can actually earn it while you're listening to the podcast. Okay, yeah. I want, I want free money. No shit. All right. Well, this has been great. Um Hard have money. a great Hard money. Your day in Florida. We're in Florida, Southern Florida, Northern? Southern Florida. Oh, okay. Nice. Like Miami or No, no, no. God no, I would never want to live in Miami. <laughs> I mean, look, it's a tech hub, but yeah i just don't i don't i mean it's too fucking cluttered yeah yeah well anyway enjoy the rest of your day down in sunny humid florida and uh we'll talk again and and, and thank you again for inviting me it's awesome take it easy all right you well bye-bye